Matthew Snape, you're a member of Common Room at St. Cross College, Oxford, and Associate Professor in Pediatrics and Vaccinology at the University of Oxford. Welcome to St. Cross College Shorts. Could you describe your everyday role within the university? Uh, yes, well, I'm a, first and foremost a paediatrician, I guess. So I still work as a paediatrician at the Children's Hospital in Oxford in general paediatrics, but I've been working for 17 years now at the Oxford Vaccine Group alongside that, uh, where I've been involved with doing studies of new and existing vaccines, initially especially uh, focused on vaccines that are of benefit to children, but increasingly also working um, with adult health and obviously with recent developments with things such as Ebola and COVID-19. These are very relevant across all age groups. So what I do is help run the clinical trials and clinical research that's happening within the Oxford Vaccine Group. I've been involved with developing vaccines against meningitis for children. And in fact, the first dose of the MenB vaccine that's given uh, routinely to infants now in the UK, the first dose of that, paediatric dose of that vaccine was given here in Oxford at the Oxford Vaccine Group Studies. And I act as the principal and chief investigator on those studies. So help basically run the team that runs the studies. I've been working, as I say, for 17 years now with the group, all of that time with Andy Pollard, who is the director of the Oxford Vaccine Group. I initially started as a research fellow and then did a uh, postgraduate degree and then went on to becoming a principal and, and chief investigator in my own right. And right now we're very focused, of course, on COVID-19 vaccines and generating as much data on these as quickly as we can. COVID-19 changed things for everybody across the four corners of the globe. How did it do so for you and your work in particular? Well, we had to rethink everything, didn't we, in February and March? And in particular, I was running a study uh, where we're looking at MenB vaccines, so vaccines against meningitis, a particular type of meningitis called Group B meningococcus that affects teenagers in particular. And I was running a study in schools where we had recruited 24,000 teenagers across the UK for a study to look to see if administration of the MenB vaccines reduced the uh, carriage of, of harmful bacteria that can cause meningitis in the throat of these teen teenagers. So we'd done all the hard work and recruited 24,000 teenagers, and then the schools shut. And so that was quite devastating, actually. Uh, we ended up being able to follow up about half of them, but uh, really it was then half of the students were lost to follow up. And so, you know, that's very upsetting. Many, a lot of people did lose a lot of a lot of research activity along those lines, and obviously everyone everyone's taken their own hits in different ways. Fortunately, we should be able to recover that, uh, make the most of the data we've collected from that study, and that's just one example of about six different studies that I had to wind down in March. And instead, we adapted some studies to to look at COVID. So, for example, we we're already running a study where we're taking blood tests from children to look at their antibody levels, their immunity against vaccine-induced diseases like uh, vaccine protected diseases like diphtheria and uh, meningitis. And we were able to adapt that to look for their antibodies against COVID. And that study is ongoing at the moment. It's called What's the Story? A serum testing of representative youngsters. And we have recruited now um, nearly 2,000 young people and teenagers for blood tests to help better understand immunity against COVID-19 in the pediatric population. So that was one example of how we had to adapt and kind of uh, change our studies, either wind down studies or adapt them so they became relevant to COVID-19. And then, of course, there's the massive uh, COVID-19 vaccine studies that have been run from the COVID, from the Oxford Vaccine Group, which are Andy Pollard has led on and has, and has been an amazing success story and a remarkable achievement. Had, I had a little bit to do with that in terms of uh, being able to help with some of the protocol development at the beginning and then actually recording some of the videos that were shown to participants and have been seen by far too many people across the country explaining the study and what it involves. 
The COVID-19 vaccine studies have been a huge undertaking for the Oxford vaccine group. Can you describe some of the major challenges that you've had to face? Well, where to begin, I think. And as I say, Andy Pollard's led on these and led a, a team here that have just been extraordinary. Challenges, workload to start with. Uh, the, the team here have just been working day and night for a year now. And in fact, we're having an imposed one week break where the whole group is not allowed to work for a week so that uh, we, we get a break. Other challenges, I think, were adapting to a very rapidly changing situation. If we think back in February, March, it wasn't even called COVID-19 then, it was the new coronavirus. Um, that's how much we knew about it. Things have adapted so quickly. And I think when it comes to the um, COVID vaccine studies, you know, that is shown that we, initially it was going to be a one-dose study and then it was adapted to be a two-dose schedule, which is now what is licensed and is being used and, and is appropriate. There was an element of trying to work out how to best use these vaccines as we're going along. I think another very challenging part was in these studies, we were actually trying to sh directly show that the vaccines were protecting against disease. And so there was an element of trying to work out where was there going to be disease. And so that's why we start, why studies were launched not only in the UK, and as they were launched, the first wave really came to an end. So the disease kind of petered out to some extent in a good way, but not so good for the study. And therefore, new sites were launched in South Africa and then in Brazil. And it was Brazil in particular that provided a lot of cases along with the UK second wave. But it was almost trying to predict where was the disease going to be and get in and immunise ahead of that so that you had then a the best chance of showing a signal if the vaccine was preventing uh, disease cases. So I think there's that scientific challenge of trying to work out how to best use uh, the vaccines and how to best get a signal if the vaccines were working. But the logistics challenge was just extraordinary and uh, of what had to be done so quickly, including setting up a mobile, mobile clinical trials unit in the car park outside the Oxford vaccine group that was set up in a day or two, complete with plumbing, fully plumbed, electricity, everything else, so that we'd have enough uh, capacity to see the number of participants that we needed to. And as a reminder, you know, we've recruited over 12,000 participants to this study in the UK alone, let alone running studies in Brazil and South Africa, and the team had done an extraordinary job from that point of view. The huge numbers of studies, to ask a follow-up question, if I may, um, would have involved existing in international collaborations, I imagine. So in Brazil and South Africa, I, I can only imagine that you'd have had already known collaborators, people you work with and trust and so on. Well, even within the UK, there was a network of 18 clinical trial sites that we ran the studies across in the UK. And really, that was a weekend of ringing around people that we knew, investigators that we knew and had worked with beforehand, and seeing if they would want to take part in the study. And the answer was always immediately yes. Really, over the course of a week or so, we were able to expand the study from five sites to 18 sites across the country. And, and a lot of those had I mean, collaborations that we'd had before. Some of them I'd worked with, for example, on the um, teenage meningitis carriage study that we were talking about before. And other ones were entirely new. With South Africa and with Brazil, there were people that we had not directly worked with before, people that we knew of and colleagues and so on, especially Andy Pollard. And on site here as part of the team, we had a, a DPhil student who is from Brazil and had some connections there as well. And so really it was building on those because we hadn't directly worked with the team in Brazil beforehand. This was a new collaboration that was set up again very quickly. And again, the enthusiasm from everybody wanting to take part in this study was, was really quite something. And as soon as they, you know, they saw that they had a chance to make a difference with this terrible disease and be part of a really important story about developing this vaccine, then there was an enormous amount of enthusiasm. And I think that went, went for everybody, not just for the sites and the collaborations, but well, everybody, the regulators, the university itself, um, our ability to bring in staff 
from other research groups who'd had activity wound down and they were all willing to provide doctors, nurses, administrators to help us run this study. So we had you know, 200 people working on this study during March and April, many of whom you know, were on loan, if you like, but everyone was willing to chip in and help out. Can I ask you if the uh, South African study now allows you to think about and work on the new variant of COVID-19? Well, that's a really important story. So the answer is yes, obviously. We'll be able to look at whether the vaccine is effectively preventing disease due to the new South African strain, and that's really important. The, the blood samples that we are collecting also in the UK and in Brazil, there is an important element of now being able to use those blood samples to test to see how well the antibodies induced by the vaccine work against this new variant. So that work is ongoing as well. So as well as looking directly for effectiveness in the South African setting, and we've got to remember that not all of the strains that circulate in South Africa are the South African variant, but some of them are. So we will be able to look for a direct protection against disease in that context, but also using the blood samples that have been collected from UK, Brazil, South Africa, and testing them in the lab against the South African strain to see if the, it is able to um, kill off the virus as well as the existing strain. Does that mean that having done the baseline work at Oxford with all the collaborators everywhere, that this work on the, the new strain could in some way be accelerated? Yeah, without doubt. I mean, we have the blood samples already. The, the laboratory assays are actually being done mostly at, at Public Health England when it comes to the actual testing of the neutralisation and other collaborators. So these existing collaborations, absolutely, we can then build on to, it's the same people, same expertise that is being called on here to then test against these new variants, kind of just a variation of what we've already done to some extent. So, you know, I think there's a clear recognition that both for the UK variant and the South African variant, this is really important to get on and test as quickly as possible. But these things don't happen overnight. These are especially the assay that's called a neutralizing assay, where you're looking to see if the blood from vaccine recipients is able to kill off the virus. These are, these are biological tests. You have to get the virus to grow up. You have to have enough of the virus. You have, have to be able to show that the virus is stable and reproducible growth and then that you're able to um, detect an effect from the antibodies if it is there. So these DSOs can't be developed overnight. Normally, they'd be, you know, we'll be talking months or longer and we're at least trying to get these done within weeks, as I understand it. What ongoing work does the Oxford Vaccine Group have planned for COVID vaccines? Yes, I think, you know, it's fantastic that we have some effective vaccines now that are being rolled out in the general population. And, and if we th thought that we could have been here a year ago, then, you know, we, we would be and we are delighted. It's been an incredible achievement. But it immediately comes up with new questions. Oh, you've raised one of them. What is the protection against the new variant? And is this a situation where the vaccine is going to have to be adapted? We honestly don't know. And if it does have to be adapted, then of course, that will have to be in new studies to test to see how well the new versions of the vaccines work. But that is a very much an unknown at the moment. We're getting ahead of ourselves there. Before we get to that point, we have to think about how long does immunity from these vaccines last for? And so already we're planning that we're doing blood tests after six months and then at 12 months after the vaccines to look to see how long the antibodies are hanging around for. So that's an important first step to see if there may be any suggestion of waning or not of the antibodies. And let's hope that this, these vaccines do generate a very sustained immunity. The other areas that we're exploring are going into a paediatric population. And, uh, you know, that's been there right from the start as part of the plans that to take this at the moment, it's gone down to 18-year-olds, but no younger. This is, we're talking specifically about the Oxford vaccine. And so there are plans to be doing a paediatric study over the next few months. And we're in discussions with the MHRA and other groups about that at the moment, what that would look like. I think that's important because we know that 
Children and teenagers rarely get sick with this disease or very sick with this disease. We've seen very few children hospitalised with COVID-19, which is fantastic. But we do know they're bearing the brunt of school closures and anything that can be done to help with this problem of opening up schools in a COVID-19 environment would be a good thing. And one part of that solution might be immunising teenagers. So, But first we need to look to see how well teenagers respond to the vaccine, how well what the side effect profile in teenagers is like. Is it like it's what is in adults, which is what we would expect, in which case that will be fine. But we need that information first before obviously we can start thinking about immunising teenagers to open up schools again, if that were to be necessary. The other area that we're looking at is actually thinking about, is there any flexibility in the immunisation schedule? So all these vaccines are two-dose schedule. And at the moment, they will involve giving the same vaccine for the first and then the second dose. But there is the potential for some flexibility if you could give for different doses for the first and second dose. So if somebody turns up to, for immunisation and they've received one vaccine, but actually what is available that day is another vaccine, is it okay to mix and match like And so that's a study that will be starting in Oxford and then running through multiple sites across the country that'll be coming up for February and March. So that's something else that's coming along. Now, the Oxford Vaccine Group's been previously involved in rapid vaccine responses to bird flu, to swine flu. How does the present challenge compare to those? Well, each has been building on the other one, I think it's fair to say. And it's remarkable how it seems that every five years we have a new challenge to respond to. And it literally has been, you know, bird flu was 2005, swine flu 2009-10, and then Ebola 2014-15. And now we have coronavirus. Uh, Ebola really was one of the biggest challenges we'd faced up to that time. We went from first notice that we might be doing a study to enrolling our first participant within, I think, uh, two to three months. And that was with a vaccine that had been developed and already had some information about a known virus, already had uh, been tested in animals and so on. So the speed with which this was moved forward while maintaining safety was was of another degree of difficulty again. And a lot of these things happened in parallel. So we started writing the protocols for the human studies and getting the approvals for those ready in place for when the animal data came through so that we're able to get going with the um, uh, the human studies as quickly as possible after. So getting that right, I think, was a key step and really part of the genius of what Andy has done here, Andy Pollard and the rest of the group has been able to get that set up. And then obviously scaling it up incredibly quickly. We went from the first participant having had any vaccine to a thousand participants having vaccines within a few weeks. Again, so the scale of logistics has been beyond anything we've done before, an order of magnitude. Um, and the, the team have responded to that challenge incredibly well. How do you see your own research going into the future, whether it's long-term or shorter term or both? At the moment, it's very much about COVID and we're really having to think about to what extent do we keep other aspects of research going because there are other, still other vaccines that uh, need to be developed. I've worked a lot previously on vaccines against a virus called RSV, which is a, the most common cause for children being hospitalised with acute illness in the UK. And that work was going apace beforehand, but it's now been all put on pause. And so we're all looking forward to when we can actually start to think about things other than COVID-19 again, maybe next year, who knows. So hopefully we'll be able to return to some of those things. Clearly, there's, I mean, but the COVID-19 issues is, aren't going to go away. There's always going to be new questions. What we've been talking about, drifted strains, waning immunity, how to best boost participants going into different age groups. These are all questions that are going to be really important in the coming year. And, and, and we don't perhaps even know what the questions are going to be that come up. Uh, there will be unpredictable signals that we'll need to respond to and questions that we need to answer that we're not even aware of. So I think we're all kind of, um, there's no doubt, it's exciting to be involved in such an important story. 
it's also somewhat um, daunting to know that this is going to be a story that is going to run and run for potentially years to come in terms of thinking about how to respond to potentially different strains, do we need new vaccines or not, etc. While still maintaining a diverse kind of range of interests as we have in the past, there are still uh, children, adults becoming sick from other infectious diseases for which we have you know, put into many years of work and we want to kind of carry that onwards as well. So a mix of COVID-19 and, and hopefully building on some other things. I think that's the answer to the question. Matthew Snape, thank you so much for your time. We've had this conversation in early January at the start of lockdown three in the UK and the very, very best wishes for the work that's ahead of you. Thank you very much, Stanley. Pleasure to talk to you.